And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. There's scarcely a more fascinating figure in American politics than Governor Jerry Brown of California, first elected in 1974 to succeed Ronald Reagan uh, as governor, an office his father once held. He was one of the youngest governors in America then. Now he's the oldest. He's run for president three times, studied meditation in Japan, worked with Mother Teresa. He's an irreverent, iconoclastic, provocative, sometimes hilarious guy. It's always fun to sit down with Jerry Brown. And what follows is an extended version of the conversation that I had on the CNN version of Axe Files the other day. Governor, thank you so much for letting us invade your your home here and for sitting down with me. Uh, This is an amazing house. Uh, tell me about this place, because you, you've, you've reclaimed it uh, as, well, a, as, a, as a residence for the governor. It's a beautiful home. It's, uh, it represents a lot of the tradition of California. And interestingly enough, the first governor uh, to come here with his family, with his daughters, was the former mayor of Oakland, uh, John, like uh, Mr. Pardee. Yeah. And so that's why it's interesting. Also, the second owner of this house was Lincoln Steffens, yes. a great muckraking journalist. And besides that, I guess the most prominent person to live here was Earl Warren uh, with his children. He lived here 10 years. So it has a lot of history. And for some reason, uh, the governors uh, wanted to live in a more suburban kind of house. Uh, and yet it's right by the Capitol. It has kind of, um, kind of uh, suggestions of, of the White House, even though it's a gingerbread Victorian house. But it does represent... Of the tradition. And for me, uh, I studied for the bar here. Um, because your family lived here. You skipped over one governor. Oh, my father, father lived here for eight years. And I first, <laughs> the only time I was allowed to leave the seminary during the uh, almost four years that I was there was to come to my father's inauguration in 1959. And we came right here. So, uh, and then, of course, uh, while I went off to law school, I did study for the bar here. Yeah. Lived up on the third floor and had a chance to see the political. Uh, conversations that took place here. I, I want to ask you about that in a minute. Uh, you went, you, you, this is quite different than when you, fir- in your first uh, years as governor, which now you ran for governor, what, 43 years ago. You were one of the youngest governors in America. Now you're the oldest governor in America. Um, back then, your politics, and to, to this day, but back then it was very much about trust and restoring trust because of the Watergate uh, scandal that really was cresting at the time that you were running uh, for governor. In in the last few days, as you've watched the developments in Washington and the firing of Director Comey, were you having any flashbacks to that era? Uh, A little bit, but I I wouldn't overemphasize that. Uh, Nixon uh, was presiding at the time of the Vietnam War, uh, Watergate with the plumbers, uh, with the enemies list. Uh, This in the the many years that he'd been in power, and also the build-up, his campaign against Helen Gagan, Douglas, uh, the the whole McCarthyism that took place a little earlier. I think it was a different period. Uh, But I've seen the press trying to make that analogy, but I think think we are in a different period. Do you... you Someone asked you if you had any advice uh, for uh, the president... Trump when he took office. I think I saw somewhere you said don't, don't, 
get into too many fights. Uh, was this a fight he should have gotten into? That only time will tell. Uh, I read the memorandum by the Deputy Attorney General, and, and he makes some significant points. And I do think that Comey's um, public statements about the emails and Hillary uh, was a very uh, bad and, and unprofessional, uh, and he never even acknowledged it. So I think Comey has uh, real serious problems. What about the timing of it? No, but that's the other point, that he asked for resources to investigate the Russia-Trump connection. So, yeah, that smells, no question. And, and where do you think this all goes now? Is this going to hang over uh, Trump? Well, it's hanging over Washington. That's all they can think about. I would like to see the Senate uh, restore some of its earlier luster, uh, thinking with the great giants in the Senate in the past, and with truly bipartisan, Democrat and Republican, let them investigate. Um, I think that maybe you bring the House in, too. But uh, Watergate uh, was a lot. The investigation there was driven uh, by the House of Representatives and by the, the committees. So I think they're capable if they could get off this circus of partisanship and polarization, which they seem addicted to. Uh, tragically. Can they? I mean, I don't know. What about the notion of a a national commission or a special prosecutor to get it out of the realm of the Senate? Or is that just throwing our hands up and saying we're not going to assume our system can work? Yeah, you just said getting out of the realm of what? Of our system, our constitutional system. Uh, These prosecutors roam wherever they want to roam. We saw that when Bill Clinton uh, was president. So I think uh, we shouldn't give up on our traditional institutions called the House of Representatives and the Senate. They have the tools uh, if they want to rise above what has become a very narrow and I would say dangerous partisanship uh, that is really not part of the original understanding of how America was to be governed. You know, uh, you came to my Institute of Politics <clears throat> at the University of Chicago uh, in, I think, 2015. And you wowed those students uh, because you were uh, yourself, you know, kind of irreverent, uh, kind of an iconoclast. And they responded to that. And one kid said, why? I think it was a Republican. So why you run for president? He said, I'm too damn old. I'm not, I, can't, uh, I can't run for president. But I was thinking of you during that, this race. Yeah. And how many times uh, did you think to yourself, man, I would love to be in this scrap right now. Because I, I think I could, I could deal with this guy, but also the politics well, of the moment. To tell you the truth, I, when I watch that primary campaign, it's not something that I would enjoy being a part of. Uh, it, the positioning to take down uh, a quasi-incumbent like Hillary Clinton took uh, a very sharp, relentless, uh, focused attack. And I, I don't know that, the, that there was a great debate there. And I don't know that I would have the appetite for the What about the general with Trump? Well, that's a whole different story. That would, <laughs> that would have been a pleasure. <laughs> and how would you have run? What, 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 what point would you have made points against him in that campaign? How would you have approached the campaign differently? Well, I think the problem is that, that you know, um, in politics, timing is everything. And when you're following on two terms, eight years of your own party, and you're in effect seeking the third term of the Democrats, uh, and there are a lot of people who aren't doing as well as they'd like to, uh, that's a very difficult position. And how, how could the Democrat 
convinced the working class uh, Democrat or independent in Ohio and Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania that, that, okay, I know you're hurting, but I have a plan, even though Obama didn't uh, deliver in that respect. At least they didn't feel that. So I think, I think Hillary was up against this, this problem of trying to push a third term. It doesn't happen that often. Yeah. George, George Bush did it, but I think that with the Willie Horton... But, what about, but, but, but you're, you're a unique brand in American yeah. politics. How would you have approached it, and what would you have told those people in Ohio and Pennsylvania? Well, you've got to run again. You've got to say, look, Wall Street uh, is ripping us off. Uh, the fact is the, the growth, the, the top is getting more and more. Uh, the, the middle and the, the lower realms of our society are suffering more insecurity, harder to get their kids in college, harder to buy a house, harder to keep a job. And globalization, whether you're in France or in, in Germany or in Michigan, it's a big problem. And uh, I was concerned about that in 92. That's why I opposed NAFTA. Now, I don't, I don't think protectionism is the answer, but if you're going to run for president, uh, Trump did tap into a sentiment. He didn't have the answer, and he's demonstrating he doesn't have an answer. But you've got to deal with the fact that globalization, as currently organized, favors the 1%, the few, at the expense of the majority. And that's going to undermine our whole system if we can't get a more aggressive um, uh, policy on curbing the excesses of, of the most powerful in our country. You know, uh, I actually went back and looked at your announcement speech from uh, from 91, and it was a rip-roaring uh, yeah. populist uh, manifesto uh, in which you talked about Washington as a one-party town, the incumbent party, and you railed against the power uh, of... A confederacy um, of, what is it, of campaign consultants, corruption. What, it was pretty right. strong. It was, very, it was very strong, and I looked at it and I said... You know, there are elements of this that, were, that Trump could have uh, said, that it was almost Trumpian in its, uh, in its pointedness. Uh, did the party need more of that in 2016? I think they need more of that right now. Well, Bernie Sanders captured a good deal of that. Uh, but, yeah, that, that, that strain. Populism has always been a minority report, from William Jennings Bryan uh, to uh, even uh, some of the people who've run uh, for president. It never, never quite makes it, but we do need um, that position uh, to stand up for the common man. That, that's what Harry Truman talked about, Roosevelt talked about that. Uh, I think we need, we need to combine that with the sobriety uh, of the mainstream that Americans look to. You know, you mentioned uh, that uh, Hillary and uh, President Clinton had been under assault uh, almost from the beginning. You mentioned the special, special prosecutor. One thing that happened in that 92 race, and I was in the room in Chicago, so I remember it, was you challenged uh, Bill Clinton very aggressively uh, at a debate about uh, funneling state business, as you said, uh, to Hillary, and you made some allegations that ultimately were the sort of root of that uh, whitewater matter that became uh, part of that whole fabric of investigations aimed at the Clintons. Uh, did, did, you, did you look back at that and say, man, I wish I hadn't have said that? Well, I don't look back. On my, <laughs> I've got too much uh, past to look back. Uh, uh, but I, you know, I, I made my points, and I've, uh, I think... It was, it was quite a moment. Look, I mean, compared to what's come afterwards, that was patty cake. I mean, let's be real here. Um, Bill was, you know, in the driver's seat there. He had all the strength uh, that I didn't have. 
And, uh, you know, I made some points, but I don't want to relive that. Uh, Bill and I have, I think, worked out a pretty good understanding. And I think uh, the Clintons have done a lot for this country. And, uh, you know, we all develop our scars. And I've done a lot of things. I, if I want to recount all my campaign um, we call them mistakes or excesses. <laughs> That's the uh, second half of the conversation. Yeah, we don't need to do that. <laughs> And I'm not going to call it a mistake or excess. But don't, I'm not a perfect candidate, and I've certainly had... Politics is about, to some degree, excess and exaggeration and rhetoric. And we all are guilty of that at one time or another. But I'm not going to parse out when was I hitting true north and when was I uh, over, over the top. But, but, but trust... Yeah. But, just on the general point, trust is a, an important element. One of the strengths you have here in California is that people trust you. And uh, that's generally been the case throughout your political career because you've stressed uh, transparency and you've stressed uh, accountability. Uh, those people seem to be hungering for those things right now. And that was one of the things that dogged her campaign, was it not? Sure. Well, the trouble is money talks. And there's a lot of money in this country. We have a huge uh, flow of capital. Uh, those who are at the top, I mean, the, the CEOs now make three or 400 times more than their average employee. Uh, 40 years ago, it was 20 or 30 times. There's a, a gross and growing gap uh, between the top and the rest of America. Now, the top is what plays in campaigns. Who's providing the billion dollars for a presidential campaign? Now, there are small donors. That's, very, that's growing. Uh, and Sanders had a lot of that. And Hillary had uh, a certain amount of that. But the, the role of, of big money is a problem because government affects the flow of capital. And those who control capital are going to try to affect government. That's just called the influence, and I think people are damn tired of it, and whatever a politician can do, I think they have to stay away uh, from this whole association and being under the influence of the powerful. Uh, I, I think you, you have to be careful and be more modest in what, you, in what you're doing. And certainly that's been... What I came... What do you see now in, in the administration there? There's a lot of... Well, it's, this is... I mean, it's unprecedented. The, the billionaires coming in, the Wall Street. This was supposed to be an anti-Wall Street, anti-establishment, but the same characters are still there. And that's going to breed a lot of cynicism, not maybe in the first six months, but over the next couple of years, that does undermine. And I think, I remember when I ran the first time, I mean, for governor in 74, it was not just Watergate. It was also the failure of Vietnam. We'd mm -hmm. just been in a terrible war where uh, two to three million people died, and we ultimately left, not the victor in any sense, and that left, what could we believe in? So I think we're back into that problem of where's the credible leadership, where's the integrity, and are they really in touch with, with ordinary Americans? And I have to say, not right now. I wouldn't say that's uh, Mr. Trump. And, and we should point out, just to note your consistency, your first campaign for uh, a major statewide office here, Secretary of State, was all about... Uh, exposure to uh, of campaign contributions and political reform. So this is not a new uh, thing not, for you. Well, that was in '70. And I will say, as a guy who wasn't in office, I could point the finger at everybody. Now, the longer you stay in office, all that same money flows to your campaign. So it, it becomes difficult to maintain the the purity of an outsider position, and that is really the dilemma. If you have a total outsider, that person can't run the government. 
if you have a total insider, uh, people feel he's so shackled uh, by the status quo that, he, that they don't want him. And that's the dilemma that we are. We need someone with insider sense and knowledge, but an outsider perspective on representing the average American who has no lobbyist, who doesn't have the, the, the hundreds of millions of dollars that many, many of the players in both parties have. So how do you walk that line? And are you better at it now than you were 40 years ago as governor? Well, I walked that line. I've been, I've been in office and I'm doing things and I've done, you know, I've raised taxes. How do you resist the, the influence of, of, of people who want to influence you, who are powerful interests? And, and how do you balance their legitimate concerns with excess that comes along with that yeah, power? Yeah, you know, that's a dilemma. I'm not, I wish I had an answer to that. I, I do think one's integrity in their life is important. But I think you also have to avoid the appearance of undue influence. And unfortunately, the whole system is under the influence of big money. And, and, and I don't, I don't want to uh, whitewash that. that. That is the truth. And that is one of the dilemmas why confidence is being undermined about both parties. Uh, and uh, I would just say uh, delivering the goods and, uh, and by closing the deficit, by uh, taking care of our roads, by protecting our environment, by protecting immigrants, uh, by helping our school funds go to the, the least uh, fortunate. Uh, I think all those things build trust. But I don't want to try to sugarcoat the fact that money uh, is flowing in politics in a way that I think probably uh, disturbs the average person. Well, let's go back to a simpler time. Yeah. Your, your, your father uh, was a, a practicing politician from the from the time you were a, a, a child. Yes, he uh, ran for district attorney. I didn't know it when I was one. <laughs> but by the time I was uh, 1943, I, I was a little older, I remembered it. And yeah. he won. And I was there at City Hall in uh, January of 1944. He was sworn in, and the mayor was sworn in too. So yeah, uh, he, he handing out these little cards with his picture on them. In fact, I remember the first um, campaign uh, slogan here. It was, crack down on crime, pick brown this time. And I always remember that. I said, that's a good slogan. Use that. I, I can use that and did it. For well, many, you know, as, a form, as a former consultant, I appreciate, uh, I, I appreciate the good line. What, uh, I, I, I've seen pictures of you with some of the most uh, significant figures in American history as a kid. So uh, I think you were hunting with Earl Warren and yes. your dad and so on. What was that like to be exposed to all of these figures uh, as a kid? Like, what was Earl Warren like? Went on to become, all right. obviously, Earl Warren, a transcendent political figure. Uh, Earl or Warren judicial was, figure. was the essence of, of dignity. Uh, he looked like the... If you went to central casting and say, give me a governor, that's Earl Warren. And even I remember being going duck hunting with him up in Calusa County, as a matter of fact. Um, and I remember after we came in from the hunt, we were sitting around having uh, a crab uh, with Roquefort dressing. I remember very well. <laughs> and you had to put a, uh, you know, a bib on. But he was very dignified in the way when you try to eat crab in a bowl of Roquefort, uh, whatever the dressing was, but he was very dignified. I would not know how to be. Well, I can't remember. Everything he did uh, bespoke um, uh, wisdom, thoughtfulness. He, he was, he did, was uh, uh, above it. And I think when he became Chief Justice, he really was a man of principle uh, in a very powerful way. So, and as governor, 
Uh, he, he fought with the lobbyists. He wanted a universal health care bill. Uh, in, he, as a Republican, we should As a Republican. Yeah. So, and your father had a very good relationship with him. Your father was Attorney General, I guess, elected in 1950, yes. uh, and had a, 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 a very good relationship. In fact, uh, he, he ran, more, there were Warren Brown posters there out were. there to which Governor Warren did not object. No, well, one of the problems was Mr. Nixon um, on the train. Running for the Senate. On the train, in, no, this was in 19. Uh, 52, oh, mm-hmm. on the train back, Warren had some, I don't know exactly what he thought he was, maybe he was still a candidate for president. He'd run, I remember, as vice president mm-hmm. uh, four years before. But he felt that Nixon uh, didn't, uh, kind of did him in, kind of a, did his own thing, and uh, that left a, a, a feeling. Schism in the party? Yeah, but Warren was not a fan of Nixon. And so when my father was running against Nixon, uh, he certainly was happy to see my father win. What, um, by the way, it illustrates in politics, you know, watch what enemies you make because they can do you in later. So that, that's the point about Trump. How many fights can you have? How many enemies can you make? And the fact is, it's, there's a limited quotient before you run out to score. Is that something that you know more about now than you did before? Is that something you've learned from your career in politics? Well, when I was Secretary of State, I met this uh, long vet, been here over 30 years, and uh, was a state senator, and I was talking a lot of reform and attacking people, and this guy said, son, let me tell you something. You know, you're, you're attacking a lot of people. You're talking a lot. Why don't you just, don't attack so many people. Every time you open your mouth, you make an enemy. Think about that. So I've thought about that for the last <laughs> 40 years. Another picture I saw... Uh, or uh, I should say piece I read was about a telephone call that your uh, father had with JFK, John F. Kennedy, President Kennedy by then, uh, after he defeated Richard Nixon for governor. Your father was maybe the only person who ran against two presidents or who people who subsequently became president, Ronald Reagan being the second. Uh, And you're on the tape uh, as a young he man. Did. I was, it was in the breakfast room right here. And Ken, uh, President Kennedy called, and my father put me on the phone, and I said a few words that are on the tape. I also was with uh, John Kennedy, came out here, and he had breakfast here, and then he went to the mansion. And my, uh, he, This was in 59 when he was seeking my father's support. But during that campaign, I remember riding the car um, going through Oakland, and I said, kind of imp- uh, a little outraged, I said, Oh, uh, Mr. Kennedy, now are you going to uh, resume diplomatic relations with Red China? He didn't, he didn't give me a straight answer. <laughs> but I did ask him that. Yeah. So Probably said, have that kid get in the car. I'm not... Uh, well, but nobody, there was no press there. So, <laughs> um, so you were exposed to all of this, uh, and, and yet you went to the seminary, not to the political headquarters to... Uh, uh, right. Well, that was after I left the seminary. No, I understand. I understand the Kennedy call was. The Warren thing probably before. But what... No, the it, Warren was after, too. What, no, I was not excited by politics. I thought that this... Uh, some of the feelings I have now, I think there's a lot of exaggeration, uh, insincerity, manipulation, um, you know, empty kind of... Showmanship. Uh, well, yeah. Showmanship sounds more positive. I think <laughs> what kind of... Uh, dead rhetoric that is not, it's not inspiring. One of the reasons I went into the seminary, I was looking for a, a, what I'd say, a pure world, uh, something on the spiritual pathway that seemed a lot more grounded, more more real, more satisfying than 
than what I perceive politics to be, which in the old days was backslapping and, and uh, now I, I derive a great deal of pleasure from it. But at the time, I was a little scandalized by the, the low comedy of uh, California politics. Yeah, you said you were both attracted and repelled yeah. by uh, the politics that you saw in your father's house. But your father was a pretty, a pretty good practitioner of politics in a very classic sense. He was garrulous and... Um, so uh, he was part of the low comedy. Well, he was pre-television. Mm-hmm. And Reagan knew how to speak on television. He was quite good. And my father was kind of a pre-television candidate. When he ran for attorney general the first time in 1946, they didn't televise campaigns. I don't even think they did in 1950. Um, but yes, I am att- I'm repelled and attracted. That is exactly true. I thoroughly enjoy campaigns. I liked running for president. I like running for governor. I like running for the U.S. Senate. I like running for mayor of Oakland. In fact, I like almost any campaign. Now, don't <laughs> tell me why. I can't explain that. Because in many ways, I, I prefer uh, reading and uh, reflection uh, out on my ranch. I, I also am very attracted to the contemplative life. Yeah. So, well, you, uh, and you spent four years in a Jesuit seminary. Vichy, yes. Took... Uh, Vows of, of poverty and chastity, chastity and, and obedience. obedience. So which of those were the hardest to uh, keep? Well, what drove you out of the well, seminary? Well, you see, obedience in the Ignatian uh, tradition has three elements. Doing what the Spirit tells you, very low. That's the first degree. Second is uh, conforming your will to the Superior. Now, that's, that's good, but not enough. Number three, conforming your intellect to the Superior. So whatever he thinks, you think. That's, that is, I would think that'd be tough for that you. That is difficult, very <laughs> difficult. So obedience, uh, look, they're all hard. <laughs> but what made you uh, decide, was that what ultimately drove you? No, to, I think to uh, uh, I have a very questioning mind. A very curi- my, I'm very curious, and I don't rest very long in a particular doctrine, position, um, or, and, and so uh, I was restless with the... The, the uh, what I would call the rather structured, um, dogmatic world of pre-Vatican II. This this would have been uh, 1960. This was uh, just about the time that um, John the 23rd was uh, uh, coronated. Uh, was put in as pope. So it it was um, it was the time of. Fer- oh, I would say I anticipated uh, this ferment of the 60s. So uh, after I left, by the way, 80 percent of the other novices left. It took them a few years to get there, but there was a, a flowing more out. Engaged. Well, the priests, the brothers, and the nuns, uh, there was an exodus. And why that was, maybe it's the increased secularization, the scientific um, uh, pragmatism of the world. I don't know what it is, but, uh, but I think um, I, I, I sensed some of that at the time. As, a, uh, as someone... Or experienced some of that. As a Jesuit, uh, now we have a Jesuit pope, Pope yes. Francis. As, have you had a chance to meet him? Well, I was with him, and uh, I, I didn't actually have a personal conversation. But I went to a, a, pontifical, a pontifical academy in Rome where the Pope spoke. Uh, it was a climate change conference, and I spoke there too. Um, you feel a kinship with him? Well, I think his uh, Laudate Si, the uh, encyclical on climate change, uh, and in what he calls integral humanity, very, very uh, fundamental. And the world we see now, it's so much about economics, the bottom line, um, the metrics of everything is 
can, how much do I get out of it? And where does beauty uh, or sustainability or, or nature or humanity, where does that fit in? I mean, it, it's so much business and money and gross domestic product. That's just a part of what life's all about. So I think the Pope and what he stands for, it, it's a very important corrective to the, the massive celebration of money, wealth, and GDP growth. Um, you went to law school, uh, and during the summer of 64, you went to Mississippi yeah. during the Mississippi, uh, during the uh, Freedom See, Summer Project. Actually, I went there before. I went there in, in the spring, uh, I think it was the 64. spring of 60, I think it was 63. Uh, I, I, was, I went there a year before. Oh, I see. Before there was something called the Northern Student Movement mm-hmm. at the time, and they were they, uh, a guy named Vern Countryman came to Yale, and they were talking about come on down to the South, and I, I went there just for a few days, and that was long enough. I was glad yeah, to get out. Wh- that, what did you see? Well, I saw a world of complete apartheid and fear, and I experienced that fear, and uh, it was it, it was it was palpable. And this was the year before uh, uh, the three. Uh, civil civil rights workers were murdered. Yeah, and, but it was Goodman, you can feel that in, in, in Mississippi. What you when you were down there, I read you went to see the governor, Governor Burnett. Yeah, who was uh, a, a major force in yes. segregationist uh, in Mississippi, but had a relationship with your dad as a fellow. Because in those governor. days, governors were more collegial, and they certainly Democratic governors, and they would go to the governor's conference. So I thought, as long as I'm in Mississippi, I, I think I better check in with the governor. I thought it would be good protection. Uh-huh. So it, and, it and, what, and did you uh, did you talk to him about the apartheid that you saw? You know, I can't remember what I talked about. I, I doubt if I went there and did a Martin Luther King and Martin Luther and said, here I stand. What the hell are you doing? Um, but it was uh, but it was affecting to you to be down there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, he apparently called your dad and said, you better get your kid out of here because. This well, is get, this we is not didn't. Good. Know, I certainly had no sense of how dangerous it was, but I saw the fear, and you could see the complete separation of the races. And for someone who never saw that, that's quite shocking. Yeah, you know, we have a lot of problems of race in the country now, and you were mayor of a majority uh, black city uh, in Oakland, uh, and there are economic and, and social uh, elements of this. But when people say. Um, this, the race relations are worse today than they've ever been. Uh, that experience speaks to what, uh, where we were uh, 50 years ago as a country. Uh, look, we've come a long way. Uh, remember, at that time, we didn't have a civil rights law. Uh, so this was Kennedy was president. When I went there, Kennedy was president. So this was before <clears throat> November of 1963. And, yeah, we've come a long way. But the fact is, and this is something in the world of, of, of Twitter and instant communication we all lose sight of. Traditions and patterns of behavior hang on a long time. Uh, this country was started with slavery and, and the, the wiping out uh, of the native peoples that were here. Those things uh, take a long time to get over. And when you see the Black Lives Matter movement, you find a lot of people still feel and experience in, in ways not what they were 200 years ago or even what they were 50 years ago, but there is still this separation of black and white. People feel that strongly, and we have to continuously work uh, to overcome it. I think the, some of the feelings about uh, President Obama reflected that, that separation 
between white and black. And it's part of what we were. We started with slavery. Washington owned slaves. Jefferson owned slaves. Um, I think the Chief Justice owned slaves. This is a, another world from what we have today. And we still are under its shadow. When, you, uh, when your father, was in his second term as governor, he experienced some of that. There were riots uh, in, uh, in Watts, um, major student uprisings because of the war in, uh, in Berkeley. Um, uh, when you, uh, I, I raise this in part because I want to talk to you about uh, 66 and his loss to Ronald Reagan. Uh, but just on the Berkeley point, I know you're a graduate of uh, Berkeley. What's your sense of what's going on there now and uh, this whole issue of free speech and Ann Coulter being uh, denied the right to speak? And so- well, I, well, I'll say just historically, uh, when my father had sent the highway patrol to arrest 600 people on Sproul Hall steps, that didn't help. Ronald Reagan really used that to... Uh, create this specter that, you know, from the Watts riot to the Berkeley rioters, everything was out of control, including the state budget. So he was the man on a white horse that rode in, uh, and he really... Probably literally on a white horse. If, uh... he, he, yeah, well, he, <laughs> he developed that issue uh, to a fairly well. Now, here we are today. Uh, look, Berkeley was about free speech, obscene free speech. that was offensive to a lot of people. So, uh, look, Ann Coulter and the anarchists, I know I encountered some of these people when I was mayor. So you have these polarized extremes, and I'm not saying Ann Coulter is violent, but she can stimulate and make a lot of of anger in response. Uh, But they've got to be able to have free speech. This goes back to the days when the Supreme Court ruled out of a case in Chicago. Uh, uh, Those are fighting words. And... uh, uh, Justice Jackson dissented, but the majority said you've got to protect the speaker, uh, even though it, it, it creates a right. You've got to find a way to stop that. That is the Constitution uh, principle of our First Amendment. And so Berkeley's got to uh, kind of man up to it and, and you know, do what they Look, should. We've had it on our own campus, and particularly now, these are tumultuous times. There's a big reaction uh, to Donald Trump. My, my colleague at uh, CNN, Van Jones, said to the kids at uh, the University of Chicago, uh, our job is to keep you safe uh, from physical harm, but it's not to keep you safe from ideas or people that right. you don't like. He said, we want you to be strong, not safe, and you become strong. Here, this is the gym. And uh, so that, I, that was my sense of what was going on out here. That it, it Well, sent, they now, sent, a number of people now say there's free speech, but then there's something called hate speech. And nobody likes hate much less hate speech. But who defines the hate? And that becomes a very slippery term that can uh, result in censorship and uh, curbing the, the robust debate that what a university is all about. Now, I don't consider Ann Coulter a contribution to the intellectual <laughs> life of America. Not even close. Uh, but nevertheless, there are, at the fringes, uh, cases where you've got to protect the speaker, even though it's more circus than intellectual inquiry. So you were disappointed that she didn't get to speak? Well, no, I'm not disappointed. Not about her particularly, but... I find it hard to react to her. But, uh, no, but look, Berkeley has had... We had some pretty... I saw on the Berkeley campus, we had a lot of speakers. So some people, you know, they used to say, you can't, if you're a communist, you can't uh, be employed in Berkeley because you're advocating the violent overthrow of the government. 
Well, Ann Coulter's not advocating the violent overthrow. But anyway, whatever it is... It, it, I think she's pretty okay with the government right now. Yeah, well, <laughs> the problem with this thing, as I see it, it's working. For the far left... Uh, the anarchists, they love this. This is catnip. Uh, for the far right, they love it too. So they're bo- it's almost like Weimar Germany. The, the, the extremes love to tear the middle down. And the, the center is not holding. And that's what a country is based on. And that's fi- Berkeley's got to find a creative way to allow people to speak. It's just uh, it's not right. When your dad lost in 66 yeah. and Reagan came in on his white horse, uh, do you, you must remember that moment. Right. And what, what, what was, what was how did you react to that? What did you say to your dad that night? What did he say to you? I remember being there. He was certainly not feeling good. That was a great disappointment for him to lose to Reagan because he felt Reagan didn't really appreciate government. And my father really appreciated what government could do in the form of the water plan, uh, three new university college campuses, building a, a new classroom every day. He was so a he, big builder. He, he was, was a builder, and he believed that, the, the, that democracy, that California could express itself through the uh, public institutions. So, yeah, no, he didn't uh, feel good, but in that, that was the beginning. Reagan was able to capture this uh, antipathy to government, government as the problem, uh, government uh, almost as the enemy. Uh, it's almost we're our own enemy. And this alienation from government, which obscures the protection of wealth and the manipulation of the, by the powerful, uh, that's kind of the state of affairs. And Reagan uh, championed that. He was uh, coming in as uh, John Wayne, uh, morning in America, uh, kind of the 50s, the, when everything was quiet. And things were quieter under Eisenhower. They, they were quieter. Uh, there was stuff going on that, uh, underneath the surface, and then it all exploded in the 60s. And in many ways, you know, the, the women's rights, the uh, rights of African-Americans, and now rights of, of immigrants. So we, we've rights of gay Americans. So th- there's greater inclusion, greater diversity, but it comes at a price. And the price is there are a lot of people who are feeling alienated and they don't recognize their America. And we're going to have to find a way to get everybody part of this great American experiment. Did you, when did you decide... Uh, you said you had this approach aversion thing to politics, which yeah. continues to this day. But when did you decide that, you know what, I'm not going to be a lawyer. Uh, I'm going to. I be- decided that even before I became a lawyer. <laughs> uh, because I was studying right here, right, right back behind me on that stairway. Uh, uh, well, on the third floor, I was studying for the bar and I found it very boring. I used to fall asleep reading those damn law books. <laughs> but I came down and was sitting up there just so you couldn't see me. My father was right over there behind you talking to Jess Unruh, and they were arguing about who's going to run for governor. Jess and Unruh was a, Jess was a powerful was the speaker, speaker of, of the House. Yeah. The most powerful. Yeah. Uh, and so they were talking back and forth, and without really thinking about it, but just reacting to that, to the hearing, I was very excited. I mean, my heart started beating. It was so, I, wow. I said, man, that's what I want to do. Uh-huh. So that was the moment. It was very clear to me. So uh, you know Adlai Stevenson III, who was the senator yes. from Illinois, the son of Adlai yes. Stevenson, who ran for president. In uh, 1962, he decided he wanted to run for office, and he went to see Mayor Daley, uh, and he asked for advice, and, the, and Daley put his hand on Adlai's shoulder and says, don't ever change your name. Yeah. Uh, you had a kind of glide path uh, because of your name. That's clear. What are the burdens 
of having the same name as the most prominent uh, Democratic figure in California politics. Very light. Very light. Very small. Uh, the fact is, uh, first of all, it's not just the name. I did well. That's a big part. When I ran for the junior college board, there were 124 candidates, and I bought, I think, I think 20 billboards. I just put Edmund G. Brown for trustee, <laughs> trustee of the community colleges of Los Angeles. Finished first. I came in first. Yeah. Out of 124. Stevenson was on a bedsheet ballot about the yeah. same length, and the two top finishers were Adlai Stevenson and Earl Eisenhower. Yeah. So. So no, it helps. Yeah. And then it also helps. That um, when I ran for Secretary of State, there was no incumbent. And then when I ran for governor, there was no incumbent. In fact, I had five challengers. And in a primary, when you have a lot of challengers, that's good because they never can get very much attention in any one of them. And I did have the name. And as a matter of fact, when I started to run, I did some good as Secretary of State. I think I don't want to minimize that. Uh, but when I started to run, my, I think in the polls, I was about 36%. After the campaign was over, I, had, I won by 36%. <laughs> so the name helps, but it does take some skill. And you have to avoid, you can still put your foot in your mouth and do something stupid. So it's, it's, not, a, it's not a guarantee. Of course not. It, it's not a guarantee, but it is a gold card. <laughs> my, my, my question is, do, do, are the expectations of you that you're going to be like your dad? That, you know, do, is there that kind of... Of, of well, they wanted me to be more of a backslapper and smile more, which I, I don't. I like to point out that Lincoln and Washington haven't been photographed as smiling very often either. <laughs> uh, but my father was more ebullient. That was the word they used about him. And he had a, a certain style. But I was not just the son of my father. I was the son of my mother. Yes. She was rather, she was a little put off uh, by politics. And she used to actually coin the phrase in regard to my father, Pat's low comedy. Uh, and that's kind of what politics is. It is a certain amount of low comedy. And now I fully embrace that. But at the time, uh, it took some getting used to. But it, it was also sort of philosophically, you talked about your, uh, your father's being a big builder and saw unlimited potential uh, and saw government as the vehicle to uh, promote uh, the common good in a big way. By the time you became governor, you were talking about uh, the era of limits, and uh, you had a very sobering message. Uh, when well, you, when remember, you this is the time we had the best and the brightest. We had John F. Kennedy, and we had McGeorge Bundy, and we had Dean Rusk, and we had all these bright Yale, Harvard characters, and they got us into the mire of Vietnam. And that was a real stain and... Uh, a big, I think, big error on the part of the best and the brightest. So that already started. Now, I started my skepticism when I leave the Jesuit order. I'm already now on a pathway of saying, hey, show, I don't know about that. And now the Vietnam War, which I opposed pretty early on. My in fact, you were for were, Eugene McCarthy. I was for Eugene McCarthy. Who was McCarthy. an anti-war candidate in 68. Your, your father was for Hubert Humphrey. He was. And by the Did way, you I, guys have... Yeah, debates we had, about we had, that? We had a debate on television about that. But now I understand. <laughs> Father-son debates, that's unusual. But remember, I'm just a new guy with nothing to lose. My father's the governor. He needs to, uh, Lyndon Johnson to help him. So we all, we occupy different positions that affect the, the way we see things. So it was Watergate. It was Vietnam. It was people beginning to say the politics. McCarthy talked about the, the, the politics that wasn't just... Uh, meat and potatoes. It was a, there was a certain psychic or maybe uh, 
spiritual or people were looking for meaning. Maybe that's the word. Uh, a meaning in politics that had never been part of the equation under Harry Truman or even when, when Adlai was running. Although Adlai had a lot of thought and depth uh, in his campaigns. Not, not that it helped him because Eisenhower mowed him down right. pretty darn good. So um, He was the one who said when someone shouted every thinking American is behind you, Governor, and he said, yeah, but I need a majority. Yeah, right. That was, they call him an A-kid. So that yeah. Was, uh, but w- I'm curious as to why you weren't for uh, Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, in that election. Why you First of all, Bobby McCarthy. Kennedy wasn't in. I, I joined with some people in August of, well, we started in August of, uh, when was this? This would be 67, the Democratic, uh, we call the Democratic Council. And uh, then that led to the peace late, 68. That was before McCarthy. We started the peace slate and we qualified signatures without a candidate. And then McCarthy uh, became the, the, our candidate. And then we were in McCarthy. Remember, uh, Bobby didn't Kennedy get until jumped March. in later. Yeah, after the New Hampshire primary. So I was already with McCarthy. And I, I did like his sense of irony. He had a wit. Temperamentally, you have some things in common. I mean, he... But I recognize that McCarthy may not have had the temperament to be president because he was too ironic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can't do that. This is a much more down-to-earth, um, you know, what someone said uh, in politics, uh, you sell more corn than caviar. So uh, I always joke that uh, uh, I have been around so long in journalism and politics uh, that I was around when Jerry Brown was governor of California because I came around just about the time that you uh, took office. And um, and I remember people thought of you as kind of uh, offbeat because you were talking about things like uh, l- limited resources, uh, the environment. Uh, you know, you were talking about California maybe having its own space program, which now you have private citizens here who are running their own uh, space program. But you slept on a mattress in an oh, apartment. I didn't really sleep on There was a little bit of a <laughs> something or other underneath the mattress. But you, but you in a little apartment like, instead of a well, yep, I had a very unfurnished apartment. It was like I'm in some way very thing. monastic. Yes. Not much there. But well, I, when my, the cubicle that I had to seminary, you have a little bed with a metal spring and you have a little uh, cabinet with a what we call so a this slop was luxurious, bowl. huh? Yeah, I think it was fine. Uh-huh. But, and, and you but by the famously way, dating Linda yeah. Ronstadt. That was, but I think part of my kind of anti-status uh, quo morphs into a little odd. You know, this is what, what's he doing? Yeah, well, uh, my, Mike Royko, my colleague in Chicago, who is the sort of H.L. Mencken of yeah. Chicago, you know, dubbed you Governor Moonbeam uh, during your and that president. stuck. And by the way, Governor Moon, because I like satellites, but part of it was I, I did jump around a bit. And in politics, you have to be very predictable. The trouble is, if you're too predictable, you're boring. And if you're boring, you're not going to get anywhere. But if you're too interesting, you're going to blow it. So somewhere between interest and boredom, you have to find the happy medium. Do you ever look back at, at those years, not at the policies so much, but at some other stuff and say, what was I thinking? Which, I mean, do you look back with the wisdom of these years and say... Well, I can say one thing. It's very clear to me that uh, when I was thinking, I did well against Jimmy Carter in 76. So, well, good, I'll just do it in 1980. This will be a breeze. Well, what I didn't calculate, first of all, that was not true. Uh, Jimmy Carter was far more formidable. And secondly, when, when uh, Ted Kennedy got in, that was the time to exit. 
because there were two giants, a president, incumbent president and a Kennedy. And no there was, room for you. There was me from California. Forget it. But I was, what do they say, blind ambition or yeah. that, that thrust, which I definitely have a thrust to keep reaching. It's pretty audacious. You, you ran for president against Jimmy Carter in 76 when he was the governor of Georgia. Yeah. Uh, but you, uh, you were 38 years old. Yeah, 38. You'd been governor for a year or two. Yeah, but remember, being governor in California for two years is somewhat comparable to being governor of Georgia for how long is there? There's an Four equation. Years, uh-huh. Six years. Uh-huh. Um, uh, but, and you lost, the, the, the 80 race, as you point out, was not uh, particularly uh, stellar. No, that was really not smart. And you came back here and you were wounded politically. Yes. By the way, I put that as an interesting example when you can really be pushing in a very stupid direction. So now I'm very conscious that even though I think I'm right, I could be very wrong. So that, uh, that experience has enabled me to be more questioning of, of my own assumptions. Even when I seem, well, well, I think that's clear. No, maybe it's not so clear. And that's why you need a diversity of advisors who can tell you straight, no, hey, that's stupid. And if a, if a leader doesn't have that, you're really asking for trouble. You... Uh, uh You've been a critic of both, uh, of both parties, and you sort of hinted at this at the beginning of this discussion, but uh, if, you, if you're looking to the future yeah. uh, and Democrats of the future, uh, I presume you're not going to be a candidate in 2020? I'm, I'm going to the ranch. <laughs> we'll talk about, about that as well. Um, what, what, what do you want to see in a leader for the party and... And where does it have to go? What does the Democratic Party have to do now uh, to be successful? Well, I think you've got to deal with two things. The, the economy is unbalanced and getting more unbalanced by the year. So you've got to deal with the accumulation of wealth, number one. And number two, you've got to do something about America's position in the world. We're way overextended. I mean, this idea that we're going to rule, we're going to settle everything in the Arab world, we're going to confront Russia, confront China, and we're going to reduce taxes. And we're not going to build up the infrastructure, we're not going to take care of all the uh, retiree health. We, I think you need some common sense. And I do think uh, the whole matter of climate change and uh, the threat of nuclear accident or terrorism, uh, the president has got to deal on a more pragmatic basis with China and Russia, uh, and even the Arab countries. Uh, and I think we need, I don't think we have that clarity today. So we need a domestic and we need, an interna- we need a more international focus. I think a lot of politics in Washington is fun and games. It's gotcha, uh, it's, it's empty, and it is not consistent uh, with the highest traditions of America. Do you think that, uh, do, do you think they're handling Trump properly now, the Democratic Party? It's the Democratic Party offering a, a distinctive, Alternative, or is there too much reliance on his? Uh, on well, his, I, I think on behavior. the affordable, uh, uh, on the the Trump care, you know, we go from Obamacare to Trump care, and uh, paradoxically, uh, that was a real lift and painful for uh, President Obama to put in that health care. But on the other hand, which is something to understand about politics, getting rid of it is even a bigger problem. Because now you have 24 million people that are getting real decent health care. And Americans, I think, do want health care. So I think the Democrats, uh, on emphasizing this, uh, they're doing well. And I think the, the climate change is important. And I think the whole matter of Wall Street's important. 
Uh, but now, how you work with Trump? This is a, this is really a question mark. How you I or should they? I mean, there's this debate about whether there should be, and and you know, you've spoken about the need to get beyond some of these partisan differences, but there's a pretty strong point of view in elements of the Democratic Party that don't work with Trump. Well, Trump is a very polarizing figure. I, I would just give you the example. Obamacare was less popular when Obama was president. <laughs> it is more popular with President Trump. Climate change is a far more significant and favorable issue under Trump than it was under Obama. So Trump, by becoming the face of anti-Obamacare and the face of climate denial, gives both of those causes, those anti-causes, a very bad name and thereby boosts the more uh, progressive uh, alternative. And that's the paradox of Trump. If the world doesn't blow up, uh, the Democrats are going to consolidate in a very powerful way if they use a little bit of judgment. You administered uh, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare in California. Uh, Talk about how it's worked here because there's a great variability between how the program has worked uh, in states where governors and legislatures were supportive and where governors and legislatures were not. Well, we expanded. We, we increased by 50% the number of people who are getting uh, Medicaid. Very powerful. But, of course, the federal government's paying for that, most of it. So the money really made a difference. Uh, but, of course, I think we carried it out well. The exchange, where we're helping people buy insurance, that worked in California like it didn't work in many other places because, one, we started early. We had one uh, leader to run it. We didn't have a bunch of people running around clashing, and uh, the person we had in charge knew what they were doing. So I think we've constructed, through great experience and good leadership and clarity of purpose, of the exchange uh, that has over a million people and has not had the problems of other states. So the fact is, Obama, uh, health, the Affordable Care Act, is not perfect. Uh, nothing could be, given the complexity of our health care system. But it it has, it's now what we have. We have to make it work. In California, we are making it work. And the only thing that will undermine it is if the Senate goes along and repeals, which would be a disaster uh, for all the human beings, mostly. Uh, but it will also, I think, uh, not be a wise uh, political move. You must be hearing from insurers, though, who are nervous about whether these subsidies that uh, underpin these markets, these exchanges, are going to be continued uh, because the administration keeps suggesting that they may not. Doesn't that create a little sure, it create chaos a little, in your no, President market? Trump is undermining uh, the, the stability of the insurance markets that President Obama uh, created with the Congress. Uh, but the, here's the big issue. What's important? What's important is health care. You know, I have my health insurance, my Medicare, my state uh, health care. Uh, the rich people have it. The 500 CEOs that are all now making millions and millions of dollars, much more than their counterparts did 40 years ago, all the big people, all the important people have all the insurance they want. Why can't ordinary Americans have the same thing? It's as American as apple pie. We're a rich country, the richest in the world. We can take care of it. And to the extent that we can improve on Obamacare, do it. But even Trump said we're going to cover everybody and it'll be better. Well, he ought to live up to that. And the House bill was a disaster. It was cruel. It was not well thought out. And it's up to the Senate now to kill it. And if they can come up with something better, hallelujah. Uh, But don't ever think that America doesn't deserve uh, health insurance for everybody, not just the powerful. 
Let me return uh, just to your to your story for uh, a couple of minutes because you you lost you came back and you ran for the Senate in '82 and you lost. I did, and ha- that was your first big. Dip- I, I mean, you lost a presidential race. I can tell you why I think I lost. I lost because I didn't get out. Of, I ran for president in 1980 and did uh, not so well. Had I stayed at my post uh, and really worked at it, I probably would have won for the Senate. If you can ever tell uh, those kind. But how did that? How did you take that defeat? How did I take it? Because you kind of went off for. I was getting a little tired of politics at that point. You know, this um, uh, being you know governor it was a tough time. We were in a recession. Um, we had this. Uh, we didn't have enough money. People were getting kind of unhappy. I remember this was the ascendancy of Reagan. And then there was this, which I didn't know at the time, but I know so well now, the Committee on the Present Danger. Caspar Weinberger and, and uh, uh, Pearl and all these conservatives were building up this, this uh, fear of Russia and let's go to the military and build it up and lower the taxes on the rich. I was counter to the trend. And so I could feel that, and I wasn't that popular. So I felt it was time to get out. In fact, I said, I think that California needs a rest from me, and I need a rest from them. And then I said, but I will return. And I, and I did. So that was good. You, um, uh, by the way, when you, when you were elected in 74 uh, as governor, was there any sense of, uh, of justice that your, your dad had lost and now you were succeeding Reagan as governor. Did you feel as if you were, vengeance isn't the right word, but avenging his... Uh, his no, I have to tell you, when you're at the age of 36, uh, to be elected governor of California was very exciting. I mean, I don't know whether people think we just do this because we're doing good for the world. Uh, it's a very personal, fulfilling, exciting thing. So did I think... I was avenging my father. No, did you feel not no, avenging? No, I felt more of that when I, no, I'll tell you when I did feel. I didn't feel it in 74. I was, wow, I'm governor of California. I shouldn't admit that, but I, I liked it. Even though I'm supposed to be humble and spiritual, I, it's a very exciting thing to be. Anyway. It's okay to be human, too. So that I seems that. pretty human. But when I came back and got a third term, my father tried to get a third term, and he didn't get it. So I felt, well, this is good. I think I've vindicated the family now that I got a brown third term. So that was good. Yeah. I did, I did think of my father in that time. Um, did he give you counsel when you lost? No. He didn't even give me counsel. He told me not to run. He said, <laughs> you, said you, why are you running for Secretary of State? That doesn't make you run for the state senate. And then when I'm Secretary of State, I'm running for governor. He said, you can't run for governor. Run for Attorney General. So I never took my father's advice. But looking back, he had some pretty good advice. Now, now that I see it. Uh, but, of course, if you're totally traditional, you don't get anywhere. If you're totally innovative, you don't get anywhere either. So it's this blend uh, of change and continuity that is the essence of, of, of governance. You uh, went off to Japan and studied Zen at a Jesuit Institution. Well, no, I, I, well, I'll tell you what I did. I went to the uh, Sophia University, uh, and that's the Jesuit school. And I went, I said, is there any Jesuit priest here who can tell me about Zen Buddhism? And they, a guy came, and uh, uh, Father LaSalle, who's a German Jesuit, who happened to have been in Hiroshima when the atomic bomb dropped. Uh, he was an older man. And I talked to him. He said, well, you know, I want you to go to my teacher, which is... Uh, Yamada Roshi, which was a Japanese Buddhist, and uh, I said, okay, I think I will. So I went, met the guy, and I decided to come back. And uh, so I did retreats under the Buddhist 
Yamada Roshi, and I did two retreats under the Jesuit, Father LaSalle. And he was a Jesuit uh, that did follow that particular form of meditation, which has a tradition within the Catholic Church uh, going back hundreds of years, uh, but very different than, than the Jesuit uh, spirituality, which I don't think we have to go into. Yeah, but, but did if you, you want to, but, I can explain. But did that, did that uh, change you, that, those experiences? You went to, work, to Bangladesh uh, to help out there, and then you wound up uh, with Mother Teresa. Well, I want to go to India because I was doing this meditation in Japan, and it's very, you're sitting on your black cushion, following your breathing. And after a while, I said, okay, this is very interesting. But I wonder how the other half is. So I think I want to go over there to India and see what Mother Teresa and the Home for the Dying. And So I, I, I did that intentionally to, to encounter uh, the, the starker aspects of human existence. And did you get to spend time with her? Yes, I did. And Absolutely. what was your impression of her? Very powerful person. Uh, when I first went there, I just flew over. I didn't know anybody. I showed up at the mother house where she was, said, you go work at the home for the dying. And when she, in effect, gave me that command, I, yeah, I'm doing that. <laughs> I, this was a person who, when she said, do it, I, I wanted to do it. So I mean, there was obedience to the voice of authority. She spoke with authority, even though she was a very small woman, very simple in her blue and white sari, uh, but I think an incredible presence uh, the likes of which I have not seen in any other human being. The interaction you had with people who were in need there, um, how powerful was that? Well, it, it, this is very, the home for the dying, people would come in, you'd feed them, one guy actually you know, shaved them, bathed them, and then some of them died. And I remember one guy, he got better, they give him a shirt and give him a couple hundred rupees and out the door he goes. That's wow. I mean, that, there's life, you, you know, life and death, and it's not this hospital, high tubes technology. It's giving care, compassion, help. Some make it, some don't. So that, that's a a realism uh, that we don't get in our high tech uh, kind of world. We're in a de- it's a couple. And when I saw people living on the streets, I talk about because we see that now in California and other places. Families living on the streets, very colorful, the smoke going up from Calcutta, a lot of pollution. But it had a vibrancy. It, uh, and Mother Teresa would often say this, the poor in America are suffering more than the poor in India. She felt because their family, their religious tradition, their customs, they had a, more of a, of a grounding or a, a, a certainty or something. And I, I did feel, I felt Calcutta was a very exciting place. Uh, it, it, I mean, you, you think of the movie Gandhi and the smoke and the fires. That's what it is. And it, it just was another world and a very, I don't know what you do with that. But um, well, What you did with it is that you came back and became chairman of the California yeah, Democratic Party well, from the sacred to the profane. Well, when I was in the seminary where we only spoke Latin, we were only allowed to speak English twice a day, uh, we never left. All we did was pray, uh, read, meditate, and do manual labor. That was our main function. And after, I said, okay, I got this one. Now I want something completely different. I went to Berkeley. And it was January 1960. And Berkeley was, wow. <laughs> I mean, I, so I used to just kind of lie on my bed. Oh, man, it was just too much. And it was a whole world. This was the time of Albert Camus and, and the absurd and existentialism and the beatniks, or at least the after effect of the beatniks. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I like to try different things. I like to go from A to Z. 
and then back again. So I asked you this because when you ran for president, you left the party to run for president and talk about how screwed up both parties yeah. were. It was, and it was, it, it was something that Bill Clinton was able to use against me. He would say, you know, good message, wrong messenger. Because they said, what are you talking about? Uh, politics being corrupt, you're right in the middle of it. Yeah, that, was a good, that was a good hit. Obviously, it worked. <laughs> I didn't win. Although I did win five primaries. I want to talk to you about, your, you, in the 90s, you were mayor of Oakland. Yes. Uh, and a lot, you, you had been governor twice. You had been uh, a candidate for president of the United States three times. Uh, unusual move to go back and run for mayor of Oakland. I know you had been there. You've been having, you had a talk radio show. You had this loft where yep. you had all kinds of activity going on. But uh, uh, what did you learn from that experience that, that, that has made you better now? First of all, I want to underscore unusual move. Some of my old political advisors thought it was crazy. How can you go from governor to mayor? Uh, so it, and it's, oh my goodness, I run for mayor. Uh, but I thought it through, and uh, I decided this would be really something important to do. Now, what I learned, of course, is uh, a mayor is some totally different than being a governor. And w what I mean by that, governors deal with a more general uh, situation. You de I deal with laws. Are you going to put in this right. environmental law, this school law, or this criminal law? But when you're mayor, you talk about this school. You talk about this corner. This was two people were murdered at, uh, you know, uh, on 20th Street or something. It's very concrete. Housing. This is a rundown area. Here we have some uh, builders who want to come in and build on it. You, oh, now we got houses there. I said we want to bring 10,000 people downtown. And the, uh, people said, what are you talking about? Uh, this was a deteriorated downtown. And all of a sudden we got, not all of a sudden, eight years later, we were on our way to 10,000 people. And now it's probably 20 or 25,000. Yeah. So it's concrete. It's real. It's in your face. Uh, Sacramento, you know, you may have to take a plane to get here. In uh, Oakland, you just walk right to the mayor's office. Hey, what are you doing? So it's much more, and by the way, some of these anarchists that are yelling at Ann Coulter, I encountered those people. In fact, I was in my office, and people broke in. I didn't have all that much security, and I was holding the door, and they <laughs> overpowered me, and they came in. And uh, luckily, the police was meeting in the next, uh, down the hallway, and they came in and dragged me down the stairs, and so there it was. So that was a little more hand-to-hand uh, -hand combat. And I, I did like it. I liked it a lot because it wasn't abstract. It was visible. It was real. And you could go from an empty corner to a beautiful new building. And I found that really exciting. You, you uh, uh, I have three things that we have to talk about. They're in my ear and telling me we have limited time. Yeah. I, there, but I, during that, uh, one of the elements that has changed in your life is your wife, uh, uh, Ann Gust. She... Uh, uh, has been uh, not just uh, your wife, but also a, a, a counselor. And, you and, got campaign, and campaign manager. Right. And finance, very successful, and which I admire. Chair. Yes. Very successful. She's yeah. A, yeah. And, and, and uh, how has that changed you? For the you got married when you were 67, so, uh, so no one can accuse you of rushing into the institution. No, I did not rush into marriage. That's true. I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical about that as well as everything else. Um, no, it's great. I, I love being married. I, my wife and I get along great. Uh, we have different minds, but 
We, are, we, we, we do things together all the time. And as Attorney General, she is my chief advisor, and all the rest of the attorneys, uh, they like that, because I'm a little less predictable. She was very managerial and uh, ran a good show. So it worked out fine. And same in the governor's office? She's a Well, a little different, because she was a lawyer, and the Attorney General was all about the lawyer. And now we're broadening our horizons here. We're building a ranch. Uh, right where my great-grandfather uh, yeah. ran a, a stagecoach stop, the mountain house. Uh, so we got a lot on our plate. And we had to move into the mansion. We had to re- redecorate it, uh, completely fix it up after 40 years of neglect. So, yeah, we, we do things together. But she's not uh, sitting over there at the governor's office uh, quite like she did in the attorney general's office. Uh, a couple more things on the party. And then I want to talk about an issue that I know deeply concerns you. Um, you know, my sense of the last election was, in addition to things you mentioned, is that the, that, uh, the Democratic Party sent a message of uh, we've got young people, we've got minorities, we've got women, so you working class white folks, we don't really need you in our coalition. Uh, is that a fair... Uh, well, that's, that's what I thought, and that's what the surveys are saying about those areas. Made now, Trump's job easier, didn't it? Made it? Yeah, it did. Now, let's contrast. Uh, Democrats, not very many, but enough, and some independents who voted for Obama went for Trump in those swing mm-hmm. industrial states. In Orange County, the heartland of republicanism, they went for Hillary Clinton. I think the reason for that is in Orange County there's more hope there's more prosperity. There isn't the insecurity that you'd have in Akron, Ohio, uh, or in, in uh, you know, in Detroit, Michigan, uh, where people feel they've been left behind by globalization. And what they were looking for is not someone who is part of the establishment. They, they wanted someone who was going to be different, who was going to take on, uh, who was going to do something different. And Trump, paradoxically, all the strange and bad things people said about him, it reinforced the idea he's different. And he's, not one of the old, he's not one of the old boys. Maybe he'll get me a job. Maybe he'll help me. That was the hope. Now, the reality is he's disappointing that. And uh, if he doesn't uh, uh, change, uh, the people in all those swing states are going to be very open to a very different kind of candidacy. One thing that's going on, I mean, my, my view is that technology uh, has enormous capacity for good, but it also is very disruptive, and it's churning at such a fast rate that we can't get our arms around it and all its, of its impacts. Silicon Valley, which is right in, your, uh, in, the, in the heart of your uh, constituency here, is driving a, a lot of that, and we have automation coming down the line here, studies saying that you know, 40% of jobs in, by 2025 will become uh, obsolete. Now, others may be created, but uh, isn't this uh, a challenge that we should be talking about? That's the other side of globalization. Foreign trade, all the low-paid workers, that's one thing undermining jobs. The other is technology, automation. Something we've, people have been thinking about since the 60s. It is a real threat. How do you connect income when there's not work? So that's something that we have to talk about. And, and, we, and we do many things in California to... Uh, supplement incomes. Yeah, uh, supplementing is one thing. It seems to me if you don't have that, that 
to say to someone, we don't have a job, you can't have a job, but we will support you, it's kind of crushing to the soul, isn't well, it? And you know what that means? That government is going to have to play a bigger role, not a smaller role. And the, the irony of Trump is his message about they've basically forgotten you, uh, the global economy. Well, unless you dig a hole and put up walls, which maybe he's trying to do, <laughs> you can't protect people. And even that wouldn't protect him. So what you need to do is you have to have a, a strong role uh, for government. The public sector has to increase its role, uh, not decrease. And that's something that goes totally contrary. So infrastructure, to for example. Infrastructure, uh, public service, uh, taking care of the elderly. Uh, there's so many universal health care, uh, preschool. There, what we need to do are things we associate with government. Right now, uh, even Democrats uh, make fun of government. No, we better wake up and find a creative way that we can act in, through our collective institutions called government, called schools, called hospitals, uh, called building roads and bridges, called building trains. And uh, that is far from uh, where the politics is today. But people just keep getting frustrated because the global economy is going to undermine jobs and wages. It's going to continue to do that, while at the same time, it's going to enrich people in Silicon Valley, in Wall Street. Just take Wall Street. Their profits are enormous relative to their size, and what are they producing? They're just producing paper to facilitate transactions. They're not building any roads. They're not educating any kids. They're not healing any sick people. So I do think we're going to need a, a greater populism, but a greater and a creative use of the public sector to deal with automation and uh, America's new uh, your father, role in the world. I read uh, that your father took a courageous stand back uh, in the, during World War II as a public official against the internment of uh, Japanese Americans. And, um, so you have, there's a tradition of this in, in your family. Uh, tell me uh, about how uh, your analysis of the policies of the administration relative to, because people, you know, there's a uh, sense of insecurity, anti-immigration sentiment out there among some. Uh, Trump is clearly tied into that. The president has tried in, uh, tied into they have that. Tied How in. concerned are you about that? Well, it's always a concern. But remember, wh where did the concern about immigrants work? It worked where people were insecure. In California, Hillary won by 3 million votes. And we have the most immigrants. 25% of, Cal of California is foreign-born. Born. Uh, we have millions of undocumented workers. They're all over the place. So... And we've taken a very positive uh, and more hospitable approach uh, than uh, Mr. Trump is doing. How so, important are these immigrants to your economy? Well, they're very important. They're, they're key. They're key to agriculture. They're key to construction. They're key to the hospitality. And, in fact, 50% of the kids in school are of Latino background. So we've got to adjust. You, you can't keep the same game going. Spain used to be the king of the mountain. Uh, Britain, the sun never set on the British Empire. The sun will set on America if we don't wake up. We're a multiracial society. It's a different kind of world out there, and we are not going in the right place. We are overextended, we're underinvested, and we're totally polarized. That is not a formula for greatness or uh, global dominance. It just isn't. I know the two, there are two issues that you're deeply concerned in. One of we touched on climate change. California has been a leader on this since uh, you were governor in the 70s, and you continue to do things to promote uh, approaches to 
climate change, but you're interested in another issue uh, that has grave implications, and that's nuclear proliferation. Why is that uh, such a Well, I've seen this for a long time. When I was governor the first time, the nuclear freeze movement was at its uh, zenith, and I supported that, and it was passed in California, a nuclear freeze. But we didn't do that. We went into the hyperdrive with the Reagan nuclear buildup, which luckily was counteracted. They would argue that's what caused the, that the spending yeah, and I don't war that. was I don't what caused that. the Soviet Union. That's very convenient to the defense establishment. The Iron Triangle of those in Congress, those in the media, and those in, who make the munitions. Uh, that Iron Triangle is something Eisenhower, a general, warned us about. Military-industrial complex. It's greater than ever. But this other issue, when Russia, under Putin, and under whoever they have, has 7,000 nuclear warheads, we have 7,000. You got China, uh, you got Pakistan and India building, Pakistan builds 20 nuclear weapons a year, and there's material loose in the world that if a terrorist got it, it could get it to Washington and blow up the White House and the Congress. This is an existential danger. And whatever they want to do about Russia and the interference with the election, they have to keep a separate uh, channel of communication. And it doesn't exist. I don't think Obama tried hard enough with Putin. And uh, Trump has made some noises. But the U.S. Senate's got to get with it. And I really believe that this is a danger that we're really sleepwalking. Just like in World War I, they're all happy that this will be a short war, everything's fine. It wasn't fine. It destroyed empires, it promoted Hitler, it promoted the Arab disarray that we have today. Horrors. Now, we are on the brink of that today. We don't know quite where we are. But when you have as many, 15,000 nuclear warheads between Russia and America, China's starting to build up. Putin building new weapons. Uh, the Congress now wants to uh, embark upon a trillion-dollar nuclear buildup. Very dangerous. So whatever else we're doing uh, with Putin or Syria or Ukraine, we've got to have a dialogue. Just like Eisenhower invited Khrushchev. They spent a couple of days at Camp David. That's what Trump should be doing. And instead of having less talk with the Russians, we need more talk. And that's not to say that they shouldn't have a nice investigation. They should. But we should not forget the fact that we are living under the shadow of nuclear annihilation. And it's more dangerous. They're all saying that. And look at the Cuban Missile Crisis. Luck. That's what McNamara calls it, that we got out of it. And we worked with Russia on Iran to to reduce substantially that threat. There are other things we can work on. So I just think we ought to not forget the big issues as well as dealing with all the other matters that uh, properly come before Washington. We, uh, we're going to continue our discussion over at, at your office, and, uh, uh, but I appreciate you spending time with us here. Well, thanks for coming into this beautiful home that, uh, thank God, is now inhabited. <laughs> yes. Now, you're, you, this is the office that you said Earl Warren. Earl Warren sent, started. Your dad, dad was, was in this yeah, office. For eight years. Uh, and, and Ronald Reagan. Ron, this is Ronald Reagan's office. Yes. When you, and, and, and tell me about him. Um, what, what kind of figure was he? You must have had interactions with him. You were yeah, secretary. He was governor. A little bit. I think he was a f- fair guy. We, I asked him for a budget increase, and he gave me half of it, I think. <laughs> Uh, but he was a man of stature, and he was, because of his Hollywood persona, uh, there was a certain distance, uh, but a certain kind of iconic John Wayne aura to him, and he never lost that. 
Uh, over here you have a photo of your ranch. Uh, talk to me about your ranch because you obviously, you're spending a lot of time there. Uh, and this has been in your family for many generations. Eight, from 1870s. Not a uh, posh. Uh, no, it's a tough. Uh, rattlesnakes gets to 105, 108 degrees. It's hot. Uh, I I drilled the first well. They used to get water off the roof and put it in a in an underground uh, cistern and then pump it up when they needed it. And there's no electricity, of course. Uh, there's a little creek. So my uh, great grandfather on my father's side. I left Germany on the ship Perseverance, which I think is highly uh, emblematic of what was to follow. And he got out to Sacramento in 1852, and his eighth child was my grandmother. And uh, she was uh, used to take care of me as a little boy. And uh, Actually, I was 36 when she died, so I heard a lot of stories about how wonderful the mountain house was. It was a stagecoach stop, and when people would leave uh, the Sacramento Valley and go uh, toward the coast go to the mines or go to the spas, uh, after uh, 10 or 12 hours, they would stop at the mountain house. And uh, that mountain house burned down in 1971, and I'm building uh, the latest mountain house. It'll have a similar function, although since we don't have horses, it will be very different. And how do you, what is it about this place that, uh, that so draws you? Well, I just can remember my grandmother telling me how wonderful it was and how people would come by and stay at the mountain house, and they would have, they were so interesting. Now, when you see how remote this place is, I was there yesterday, maybe four cars came by. So I can imagine 100 years ago, it was even more remote. Uh, but it, uh, it's surrounded by mountains. It's not on a mountain. It's in a valley surrounded by mountains and full of oak trees, and it's, it, has a, it has a beauty, uh, and it has a remoteness. And so all of that put together, and the fact that... It's a little like you. You spend half your time in this hub of political activity, the capital, and then you go an hour away to this ascetic, uh, isolated place. place like the two sides of Jerry Brown. Maybe, yeah. Well, I guess I feel that my grandmother, she obviously wanted to get out of there. She was the youngest daughter. And they have a little picture in 1895 of my grandmother when she was, I think she was like 17, and she scratched it out so you couldn't see her. It's only the women on the, at the mountain house. And the next year, she left for San Francisco. She wanted the bright lights, and she got the bright lights. And her son became governor of California, and her grandson became governor too. Now I feel I'm returning uh, to the place where it began in America and kind of getting that uh, Germanic perseverance uh, an understanding of how to live. Yeah, I love the perseverance thing. Any guy who can be governor of California uh, 40 years or so apart has to have perseverance. You, uh, you came back as governor in the midst of the Great Recession. California had, what, a $26 billion operating deficit, uh, $35 billion in, 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 in accumulating debt. 12% unemployment. Where are you today? And well, how today we don't have a deficit. We, we've eliminated the wall of debt. We have a rainy day fund of uh, $7 billion, and uh, the unemployment's 4.9. Uh, we've created uh, over 2 million jobs, and the growth rate in the last 12 months is 40% faster than the national average, despite our taxes and our regulations and our pro-environment, uh, pro-dealing uh, with climate change efforts. So... 
So what does that tell you? Well, it tells you California is a fabulous place. And it also <laughs> tells you that I did, well, maybe I have some skill. I do, the difference between now and when I first started, I was 36. I had very little regard for experience. In fact, I thought experience uh, was the problem. Remember, they, they talked about red and expert. And the red was the revolutionaries and experts were the people who knew what they were doing. Now I'm more into the expert category. <laughs> I know what I'm doing, and I have people around me who know what they're doing. So uh, I find that's experience. Uh, now I say there's no substitute for experience. <laughs> what happens now? Because you, as you say, you're drawn to this. You like it. Uh, you're energized by it. Uh, you know, in a couple of years, someone else's stuff is going to be in this office. That's true, and I, I, I know because I've been here and not been here. So when governors are out, no one remembers them. All the excitement and the detail, it passes. In fact, I told my father once, he said, history will record. And I said, Dad, history doesn't record the activities of governors. It really does fade out. So I'm very aware of that. Although you're doing some things now that... Um in terms of infrastructure, may have some lasting. I mean, are you thinking more in terms of sort of durability, things that you can leave that that you can look at and say, this is my legacy? No, I never talk about a legacy. I, I don't. I do what I'm doing because I think I, I think it's the right thing. I'm excited about it. I'm working on climate change. I'm going to China in a couple of weeks. Um, I want to work uh, because I think President Xi now with Trump uh, kind of backsliding on climate change is is an important, maybe the most important uh, person now in the world, and California is important too. So California, China have to be uh, have to do the heavy lifting to keep us on track to reduce our carbon footprint. It's crucial. It's existential, and I think I can make a contribution. That's what I'm doing. And after this, are you going to continue to work on these issues, or are you going to retire to the ranch and 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 write and think? That's, and- the, that's the question. Well, I have to think. Your wife asked me to ask you. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm not telling. <laughs> um, last, last thing. The Jerry, I know you don't want to talk about legacy, so I'm not going to use the legacy word. But when, when and I know Can you... Can I tell you why I don't think about legacy? Yeah. That's already looking back. I'm looking ahead. It's just like some people in politics want to get their enemies. And, you know, if someone does something to me, I, I want to move on. I want to make new friends, new allies. And the high-speed rail, uh, climate change, Affordable Care Act, rebuilding the roads and bridges of California, that's plenty to do. That's, pretty, that's very exciting. And so that's, a, that's something to do. Now, if you get doddering and you got nothing to do and no one's picking up the phone to call you, well, maybe you want to think about your legacy. That's called a memory. I'm not in memory yet. I'm in action, and I like being in action. Governor, thank you so much. Great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 